Hey, Ange. How's it going? Pretty good. Good. Well, that means this is another week of Money in the Bank. We're excited to be back, so we're still doing our promo for people to enter if they haven't yet. They can, if, if you tell your friends about the podcast in any way, shape, or form, through email, through social media, if you just go ahead and let me know at Angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com, shoot me an email and you're entered to win 50 bucks. Awesome. That's way better than a trivia question, which I thought is what you were going to say. Well, that's coming next. Oh, so are you on. ready for your trivia question? All right. So our longtime listeners know that Ally Bank Account is literally my favorite. Not affiliated with them in any way, but if they want to be affiliated with me, that would be great. <laughs> but so your trivia question is, what is the interest rate on an Ally Savings Account? Uh, I think it has been like really high at like one and a half percent. And this was a trick question because they just raised the rate last Friday. So it is 1.6%. Wow. Okay. It's getting even better because I thought it just went up like a couple weeks ago and now it's up again. It did. So a year um, ago we were at 1% and now we are at 1.6%. So I don't know. People always say like, oh, don't go with a big bank. They don't have your interest in heart. Go with a credit union. But like, Guys, Ally has my back. <laughs> yeah, and I just opened a, a Fifth Third account to get like a promotional, you know, a couple hundred bo- hundred bucks for temporary holdings of money. And that was like, they're going to charge a service charge um, for, for you know, in addition to that. And I think no savings rate. So yeah. I'll take 1.6% for no fees any day. You're also spoiling a future episode. Oh yeah, we're gonna. We've been we've been dabbling a lot in credit card hacking and bank account hacking to get a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in a couple months, once we've kind of gone through quite a bit of that, I'm gonna I'm gonna blog about our experience, podcast about our experience with that. Yeah, look forward to that one then, because we've already made like a couple thousand dollars this year. Yeah, and just you know playing around with that. So it's pretty cool. You know, there's all this stuff now that I'm doing, and I'm like, oh, it's you know, for podcast research. And one thing that we're going to talk about today is I sold my car. Oh, yeah. That's been a big, a big ordeal. Um, I mean, it was really easy to do. We just had, we put a lot of planning into it, right? Very easy. It it was, it was a little shady how easy it was to actually get rid of your car. So now, you know, I've talked to some people and I've told them, you know, the right thing to do in your financial situation is to sell your car and get into something cheaper. And I always hear the excuse, well, it's not that easy to sell a car. It is. It took us 15 minutes. Yeah. I mean, all we (laughs) needed was a driver's license and the title, and they just, like, scanned a couple things and sent us on our way, like, with a check. Yeah. So we've actually talked, we've hinted at this a lot. I've hinted at the fact that I made a mistake buying that car and that we were going to sell my car. And we have officially been a one-car family for just over a week now. How do you feel? Uh, well, I've been, I was in Chicago all week, so it's not much different. <laughs> um, but yeah, you were here just, I mean, with your car. I, I haven't noticed a difference. We usually drive to go get groceries or anything, you know, together anyway. Um, 90% of the time or more, one of our cars was in the garage um, at all times because either I work from home or I travel, right? So I don't need it as much. And you work really close, so you either bike to work or right unless the weather's terrible then you may drive or you need to go across town or something after work and then you drive but very very rarely did we ever absolutely need to have both of our cars out of the garage so it really hasn't impacted us yeah you know we were kind of in an interesting situation because Brett works from home most of the time and I work about just under 5 miles 
from our house. Um, and so, you know, last week when I had the car, you know, he, he was consulting, so I dropped him off at the airport, and I had the car all week. And then I realized on Thursday, as I drove to pick him up, that that was the first time I had used the car since he had been gone. So even having going down to one car, I still felt like I didn't really need it, you know, for 90% of my week. Right. And I think, yeah, you had put like 20 miles out on the car or something since I had left. And um, I think that was all from driving back and forth to the airport. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, you know, the other funny thing was when we were talking about selling my car, you know, one of the justifications was so far, you know, year to day, I had put less than a thousand miles on my car. So then we kind of thought, well, if we're not putting them on my car, obviously they're getting put on the Civic. And the the best thing was when I was like, well, how many cars, you know, how many, or no, it came up it because my, you were like, maybe change. I need an oil yeah. change. And I was checking that, but it said I don't. And I said, well, how many miles have we put on the Civic so far this year? And it was just over a thousand. So not only since January, since or, January, yeah. you know, so far for the year. So not only were we just not putting that many miles on my car, we're just not driving that much. And I think, you know, something else to highlight is people, I think a lot of people would say like, oh, well, that's great for your situation that you just happen to live close to work and you can bike to work and Brett just happens to work from home. But we actually created this scenario so when we lived in Chicago, you did not work from home all the right. time. And when we lived, when we first moved back to town, I lived about 10 miles away from my office and I drove in every single day. So we were really intentional with buying our house to make sure we were in an area where I could bike to work and I could bike to the grocery store. And that, allow, that really allowed us, that was kind of like the key component to us going down to one car. Right. And we can even, and, and we have done this several times, bike to the farmer's market. So, I mean, we, we've covered all of our bases, especially in the summer, so we can still get really cheap produce, really good quality produce from this farmer's market, and we don't even have to drive there, right? And work is all covered, right? So we have all of our basic necessities covered in this scenario for where we are, right? Yeah. That's very, very intentional for where we are. So now, what about the subgroup of people that say, oh, well, I couldn't sell my vehicle because I need a truck to haul things. <laughs> um, well, it's funny. Every time we pull into um, anywhere or drive past any driveways, you know, the truck beds that we see, nobody's either either nobody's hauling anything or the things that we have ever needed to haul wouldn't fit in a truck anyway. Yeah. So uh, I brought up this specific scenario because right before we sold my car, we were putting we were installing a French drain in our backyard and we needed ten foot sewer pipe segments. Eleven, yeah. Or eleven foot. And we got them in my Ford Escape, but we had to make two trips because we couldn't fit four of them because it was literally like touching the glass, running at a diagonal all the way to the back of the vehicle. Right. And that was max maxed out at two or maybe we fit three in there we shoved three in there but the gate wasn't closed and it just kept like freaking out the whole way home and unlocking and relocking the car Mm -hmm. (laughs) that could have completely broken it um and the funnier thing about that is in hindsight we realized we should have taken the civic to pick up the sewer pipes right that would have been for that particular job that would have been more effective because we we have the 
um, roof racks that we use for the paddle boards, and that would have been completely effective. And we could have just strapped them on the roof. Right, because, yeah, the paddle boards are a little bit longer than 11 feet, 11 feet and a couple inches or something, and so the pipes would have fit perfectly in there. Yeah. So, and, you know, the other thing we realized is, you know, we do a lot of our own home maintenance, but if we ever really need to haul something that we cannot fit, you know, on the roof racks, Home Depot has a rental truck that sits in the parking lot. A van, actually, which right. is they have trucks, you know, even they more have vans, convenient. They have different, different vehicles. Um, and you can rent it for like twenty dollars for an hour, which we live so close that we could obviously, you know, get it all home and unloaded and back. Um, so when we crunch the numbers, you know, we're saving. I think when I crunch the numbers, we're saving about four thousand dollars a year at a minimum by selling my car. And so, you know, that that's breaking down to we have about oh well three hundred fifty dollars a month. That if we don't spend more than $350 a month on rental cars or rental trucks from Home Depot, then we're coming out ahead. Right. And that means like the gas transferred over to my car because we'd be driving like just as much as we would have before. But it's all the the reduced maintenance cost of your car, the wear and tear on your vehicle, Mm -hmm. mostly in the insurance, right? And And the depreciation. And oh, yeah, sure. Depreciation. Um, Because, you know, I was putting such few miles on my car at this point. But what people don't realize is even, you know, I was selling a car with 40,000 miles on it that was, you know, five years old. Um, But now at this point, I was really only putting about two to 3,000 miles on my car a year. And if you see a 10-year-old car that only has, you know, 50,000 miles on it, it's not like it can still sell for a two-year-old car that has 50,000 miles on it. People do kind of value the age of the car as well. So right. you do have a lot of depreciation running off, even if you're not driving that much, right. right? I mean, they always say as soon as you drive that car off the lot, you just you know lose twenty percent. Right, absolutely, and that's a right. There's no good reason for that. The car, I mean, maybe if it was sitting around not being driven ever, like it would deteriorate in some way. You know, that's not necessarily good for the vehicle, but. Right. Having a really, really low mileage vehicle that's 10 years old, people are still just not going to pay top dollar for that, right. even though you've put like no no wear and tear on the car whatsoever. And maybe you've actually taken really good care of it. It's all perception. So, yeah, it's it's ne- rarely ever or never a good idea to buy a new vehicle because you're definitely going to lose half the value of that vehicle to thin air. Right. right? And I mean, if you're going to drive it for 20 years, you know, whatever, you don't really care at that point. Um, But it's something to keep in mind. And, you know, that actually brings me to a point I wanted to make that very few people understand how much their car is really costing them. So, you know, I actually had somebody asking me like, oh, why did you sell your car? It was paid off. Yes, it was paid off, but I was still paying insurance, registration. I was still eating a couple grand of depreciation a year. And on the flip side, you know, with the lump sum of money I got out of my car, I can invest in something else now that is not a depreciating asset rotting in my garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a huge component for me. You know, I can throw that money in the stock market and earn 7% average on it. Um, or, you know, in Lansing, I could buy half of a house with that money. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close, yeah. So, you know, that was a huge factor too is – Cars are a lot more expensive than people think, and I know we've really talked about it in the past, but I will never stop emphasizing that because I think so many people 
you know, could could really get to the next level of their financial journey if they just took a hard look at their vehicle selection. So we have this exact example, or I did, when I moved to Chicago. So I had my car. I bought it when I graduated from high school. I drove it while I was in college in, in town. So I had, like, only highway miles on it and then, like, 10 minutes back and forth to school, uh, you know, every, every other day or something. Um, and then I moved to Chicago left it in my parents' garage, didn't take it with me. Um, so they took care of it. My dad would like drive it occasionally, right? Really taking good care of it, getting it washed and waxed like every week, um, right? So was that the right thing for me to do in that scenario was to just hold onto it in a storage unit or a garage for three years until I came back and moved back and then used the car again? Or would it have been smarter for me to, you know, take the money, sell the car at that time, take the money, invest the money, and then buy a you know new car for the exact same value I sold it for. Yeah, so my emotional reaction is that you made the right decision because I love Victor. I love our Civic. It's a great car. We have a lot of life left in it. And you know, it's a, it's a great vehicle for us to own, so I'm glad we own it now. But realistically, the best storage unit is Craigslist. So you really probably should have sold your car before, you know, when you left for Chicago, then you had three years of not needing a car. So, it, you know, in Michigan, insurance is quite expensive. So really, that was probably about three grand right there, let alone depreciation. Well, there was no there was no insurance on it because they weren't driving it. I don't even think they put it on their plan. You had insurance on the car because we would come back and you would drive it. And if your oh, parents were yeah. driving it around town, it had to have insurance yeah, on it. You're right. So, so either or in that yeah, married couple, you're right. That's always the right thing <laughs> to say. Um, but yeah, you know, so with three years of insurance, that's, you know, three grand plus the depreciation. Um, and even with it, just, you know, honestly, the fact that your parents were willing to drive it around was better because when cars just sit there, you know, tires go low and a lot of components, they need to be run regularly. Um, Cars just sitting there is a really bad thing. So right, your tires will, will rot. Yeah, um, and and the fact that you didn't need it at all for those three years, so you could have sold it, taken that money, invested it, and three years later you would have you know had compound three years of compound interest on your money, and you could have taken it back out and bought that exact same vehicle. And and taken money away. And had money yep. to to take with you. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the most optimal decision that you had made at that point. It worked well for us, um, but also we ended up moving back to Michigan a lot faster than we thought we were going to. So if you would have stayed in Chicago for 10 years, you know, that and never needed that car, that would have been a pretty, like, detrimental thing to have paid for. Right, because then I would have been, yeah, well, at that point I would have been 15 years old and... Right, even if it has forty thousand miles on it, which is what it had when we moved, then nobody wants it still because it's almost you know fifteen year old car. So right, it's not going to be worth more than a couple thousand dollars anyway. Yeah, regardless. So you know that actually kind of brings me to two good points that I want to make in this podcast. Um, one is sunk cost fallacy. Have you ever heard about that? Uh, no. So basically, what that is is well. And it's honestly why I didn't sell my car faster than I did is, oh, well, it's already paid off. So it's the idea that, well, I already put all of this money into it, so now it's a good decision to just hold on to it. Right. When really sometimes the right answer is to cut your losses, cash out, and move forward. Right. 
Um, and I, you know, when I work with people, you know, I do a lot of kind of financial planning and coaching on the side. Um, but when I work with people with it, when I work with clients, this is a very common thing is like, oh, well, I already purchased this vehicle. So it's off the table. And I'm like, Oh, no, 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 no. When you bring me in to help with your finances, nothing is off the table. <laughs> um, but it, it's a big problem for people because they're like, oh, well, you know, I already I already bought this $40,000 truck and it's paid for. And I'm like, okay, great. So you can sell it for 30 and we can get you into a car for 10 and you can, you know, throw $20,000 at your debt. You know, but a lot of times people don't want to hear that because it's kind of this idea that like you've already... It's the emotional aspect of you've already sunk this money into it and you don't want to feel like you made a mistake. So you just hold on to it. Um, And I know for years that was true of me with my car, you know, it was paid off. So I just felt like, oh, well, I already have this paid off vehicle. Why not keep it? And then once I really started realizing how much it was costing me just to hold on to that vehicle every year, I was like, yeah, the right thing to do is for me to let go of it. Oh, I mean, it's human nature to be protective of your assets, right? It's, it's yours. Like you want to hold on to it. You want to make it last as long as you can extract as much value out of it as you can. But yeah, you got to look at the whole picture and really nobody looks at that whole picture to say this thing's a money pit more or right. less, right? And you know, another big thing is if you're still making payments on a vehicle, payments that really you probably can't afford or shouldn't be affording, it is never too late to be like, hey, you know, what? I made a mistake and I just need to sell this car and get out of it. You know, I've worked with people that they were a couple grand underwater on a vehicle. And I was like, you're going to have to bring two grand to the table to get out of this car. But you need to get out of this car because you are driving around way too much vehicle and it is way too expensive. And the sooner you sell it and just like eat that mistake and own up to it, the faster that you can get into the right vehicle for you and really start building wealth. Right. Especially under underwater on a vehicle, right? You can't stop the bleeding, which is that payment that you still always have to contribute to until you can, yeah, put the tourniquet on it, which is the down payment or pay, pay the whole thing off and then just get out from underneath it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so kind of on the same page, are you ready to talk about your very favorite topic? Trivia questions? No, the ac- <laughs> genuinely your favorite topic. Compound interest? Oh, opportunity cost. Yeah. All right. So, you know, that's the other kind of edge of the sword. So one is the sunk cost fallacy of like, oh, well, I already paid for it. The other is understanding the opportunity cost of not having it. So it's not for everybody, but I, if you would have asked me, even four years ago, if I would be living in a one-car household where the one car that we kept was our older vehicle, the Civic, I would have laughed in your face. But the more that we analyzed the numbers, the more we understood the the opportunity cost of holding on to my vehicle. So by selling the you know 2013 Escape I had, we are going to be able to do some really cool things. Like, things I am really excited to talk. We can't really talk about them yet because we don't really know yet. Um, but we, but we have done. ideas, and we have some really cool ideas. So I hope they come to fruition, and I hope we can further elaborate on them. But it's the whole point of, like, you know, every time we spend money, not just with something as big as a car, but literally when Brett goes and travels, you know, on a consulting job, he does not go out to eat for lunch because he is analyzing the cost of that like $5 lunch out and being like, would I rather 
have this $5 lunch or would I rather save this money to do something better? And that is opportunity cost. Right. Because by the time, you know, every $5 a day, you know, four days a week that I'm gone, right, that's 20 bucks a week. Um, right. And then times how, you know, if I'm on the project for 10 weeks or something, that's 200 bucks. Right? I can do a lot with 200 bucks. But when you're there day by day, you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, it's easy to get rid of it. Or especially getting a cro- coffee three o'clock in the afternoon with everybody else in the office. Right. Going down to the whatever the little coffee shop is and whatever company you work for. Oh, bon Pond. Right. It's, it's a very <laughs> yeah, maybe um, that's a that's a very easy thing to do because you have the crowd mentality forcing you to do it because they're all oh, OK. Let's go take a break. It's like people that smoke. Right. It's like going out and taking a smoke break. Like everybody just wants to go be part of that social group and go do what everybody else is doing and take a break from work, more importantly. Um, and your excuse to do that requires you to either inhale cigarette smoke or uh, buy coffees, right? Those are the two most common excuses. Same with lunch, right? Everybody's going out to eat for lunch. What are you going to do? You're going to go out to eat lunch with them because that's the that's what everybody wants you to do. That's what you want to do. It's crowd mentality. So if you can break... Peer pressure. Yeah. Uh, social engineering, yeah. So if you, if you can break that cycle, right, getting all that money back from that coffee or from that pack of cigarettes or from the, the cost of lunch... If you're not bringing your own lunch, then, you know, it's it's it really adds up over time. And those Mm -hmm. those those really snowball more than anything on a day to day basis. Yeah. And, you know, recently. okay, so I would say, you know, us financial. I don't know. What do you even call us? Financial podcasters, financial crazy people, crazy people. Us frugal people have been telling you for years to get rid of your coffee. Recently, there has been this huge tidal wave of people turning back and be like, my coffee is not the reason that I am poor. And I, you know, there's been studies on the latte effect. And sure, if you're getting it once in a while, I am not talking to you. I get coffee once in a while. But if every day you are going out to lunch or you are getting coffees or you are joining people for happy hour, it matters. You know, I think the biggest lesson I learned is that a millionaire is made $10 at a time. The average millionaire in America is not the people that are making crazy buku dollars. It is middle income people making really good decisions every single day. Right. And it's the people that have earned being a millionaire, right? Not the kids that have just inherited from their family because their interest, the interest rate in their bank account is like more than what 10 middle income families make all combined, right? That, right. That, those people, yeah, forget those people, um, right? The people that have like earned it from the ground up have made their own, made their own wealth they have done it, yeah, $10 at a time. Right. And I think that's something to keep in mind, you know, as you are analyzing your portfolio and thinking through opportunity costs, like, it, you know, we've kind of viewed our finances as almost a business. So like, you know, with selling my car, it was like, what's the right decision for the business? And it was to kind of get that capital back sooner and be able to invest it in something that can make us more money. So you know, from, from an actuarial standpoint, we wanted that, you know, to be generating free cash flow instead of consuming it and creating economic value, um, for you non-actuaries out there. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) but you know that I say that to say it is important to analyze these decisions, you know, and I, I think it extends further from these bigger things to also, you know, analyzing, but I will, you know, and I think maybe that's my point here is that it really started with us Four years ago, we were like, let's get better with our finances. And we started doing it slowly. It was like, let's make sure that we're, you know, homemaking all of our lunches. 
Whether we're in the office or at home, we're not going to go out to lunch anymore. And then shortly after that, it was, let's stop going out to dinner so much. And let's really hone that in. And then it was, okay, Angela, like, you've been buying coffee at work three days a week, so let's just cut that out. And, and then we keep going further into the rabbit hole, and all of a sudden it was, let's sell your 2013 vehicle and inject that capital in. And, like, now the magic is happening, right? Oh, yeah. It's been a very, you know, step-by-step process exactly like that, right? Learning how to cook more, cooking more for dinner and not going out to eat, uh, optimizing your groceries, right? It's just one thing after the next, and, and you just progress one thing at a time. You can't go from you know, where we were four years ago, just like doing whatever we felt like and not thinking about anything and, you know, just kind of putting money away in a 401k because somebody told us to, to being completely optimized with our financial picture and having investment properties and diversified portfolios across the board and really optimized our, our income and optimized our spending, right? So we're not spending hardly anything anymore, right? You can't just do that overnight. Like no matter what you look at, it's a it's a cultural shift that you have to go through and be comfortable with and adopt. Um, otherwise, you won't be successful with it. You, right. If you go from zero to sixty in, in that model, it's going to break you. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a slower progression. I mean, you can probably do it a little bit faster than we were if you're like uh, really hitting the ground with it. But um, you know, we we're pretty focused on it now. Like everything that we look at. I mean, we're we're all in on on optimizing everything that we're doing and looking at things and. Uh, you know, I don't eat lunch when I'm traveling, so because I'm that. And I unplug everything in the house. <laughs> yep, she is losing her mind. She's unplugging the TVs. She unplugged her phone charger because she thought it was drawing energy. Guess what wall. our electric and gas bill was last month, though. Uh, probably fifty percent of what it normally is. Because you is, can't argue with results. You're kidding me that this is working. Are you kidding me? Oh my yeah. Gosh. So usually in the summer, um, which I say summer because we're not running the heater twenty four seven. Our electrical bill last year was probably about 75, 80 bucks. Last month it was $58. So the reason I'm so proud about this $10, is $10 less, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, but that's a big <laughs> deal. $20 less, and that's a big deal on this. Mm-hmm. Because some a lot of it's base charges. I can't get those to go away. That's like 25 bucks right there. Well, we could talk them down. Um but you know, the reason I say that is Every month when you get your bill, it compares you and it says like your home, efficient home, average home. So in the past, I always tried to make sure we were under the average home. But last month for the very first month, we were more efficient than the efficient home. (laughs) And I was super proud about that because we aren't, you know, a super efficient house. It's not like we have solar or anything to offset that. And, um, you know, we have a, our, we have a finished basement, so we have a 2,500 square feet of finished space, and our bill was under $60. And I mean, we talk to other people with similar size homes that are paying $200, $300 for their electric and gas bills. Well, most people we talk to, yeah, for, for houses, I mean, comparable or larger than ours, really. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a huge difference. So, I mean, even if you can just half of that, you're saving 100 bucks. that's $1,200 a year. Start thinking about that. What could you do if you had an extra $1,200 a year? And once you start, you know, realizing the different investment potential out there, you're going to be retired before you know it. And it's a beautiful thing. So, all right. Well, we can, we got derailed. I don't know. We were supposed to be talking about my car. And then I started talking about my crazy unplugging things. 
<laughs> I don't know how we got here, but we got here. Um, hopefully we provided some valuable information today. I think we did. Um, ultimately, I will definitely keep you guys updated. You know, it's been one week that we've been a one-car family. I don't know how this is going to continue to go. Honestly, I'm still a little bit hesitant about it. I did have a... I've owned my own vehicle since I was 16 years old, so it's not like this was easy for me to do. Um, it's definitely been a little bit harder, like, emotionally to process, but it's been great. This one week, it's been great. I will keep you updated. If we buy another vehicle, I will walk you through that process, and if we don't, I will let you know, like, how we manage, because I think it's pretty cool to reduce our consumption right and for people that aren't familiar we live in the midwest and in an area where public transportation is not great so having having one car is you know having a car in general is the absolute norm having a car per person of somebody that is able and the right age to drive cars is a hundred percent normal right oh yeah and i would say like me biking to work and making that happen is super abnormal. All of my coworkers think I'm crazy and I'm basically risking my life every day. Right. Essentially, is, for, the, is the like common thought process. Just for anybody that was like listening in Chicago and they're like, of course you don't need to have a car because right. yeah. <laughs> um, our public transportation is amazing. No, and, and that's a good point. Um, you know, my coworker the other day actually told me like, if this is what if this is the life you want to live, why don't you just move to Eastern Europe? And I was like. I wish I could, <laughs> but I can't. So I think what's even cooler is that I am like, I'm not just talking the talk. I am biking the bike and like, <laughs> oh, that was lame. That was so lame. <laughs> that was lame. But, but I'm making it work like literally in Midwest, everybody here drives America. So if I can do it, like you can too, you just have to want to do it, which is cool. Um, all right. Well, like I said at the beginning, we are we still have our contest running, so go ahead and enter that to win $50 and, you know, leave a review or shoot me an email where you shared our podcast with somebody, and I will drop all of our contact information in. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Money in the Bank. Make sure to subscribe to us on the iTunes or Stitcher app so that you get weekly alerts every time we post a podcast. Or if you want, you can visit my website, moneyinthebankpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out with any questions or further comments, please email me at angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Money in the Bank.